Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Bickerty Library in Boston. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. At the time of this recording, we are entering the holiday season in the United States, a time that often brings a renewed focus on family and family relations in all their complexities, and which can invite efforts to reach over family divides. So, we thought we'd look at some of the correspondence we have in the Mary Baker Eddy Library collections that reflect Mary Baker Eddy's dedication to her family, notwithstanding divides, sometimes profound ones. In the cases we've selected, we will profile samples that show what was at stake for her as a mother, a grandmother, and sister-in-law, demonstrating concern and love while confronting the consequences of separation and divides, which often were not of her own making. To join me in this discussion is Mike Davis, Senior Research Archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's always wonderful to be in conversation with you, Mike. You've been working in our collections here at the library for many years, so it's a real privilege to be able to talk with you about what's in our collections. Mike, I thought it would be very helpful to start with just a bit of a backstory to explain how it was that in some ways a very unusual and complicated divide came about between Mary Baker Eddy and her only child, her son, and then consequently with her grandchildren. Well, Jonathan, Mary Baker Eddy, as a young woman, she got engaged and then married a young man named George Washington Glover. They got married on December 10th, 1843. He was a building contractor, and they moved south together and settled in the Carolinas. Unfortunately, they were only married about six months because her husband died on June 27th, 1844, of yellow fever, leaving her pregnant. So in her condition of pregnancy, she returned to New Hampshire, and then her son, whom she also named George Washington Glover, was born on September 12, 1844. Her health deteriorated, and the child was very rambunctious. Young George was hard to control. At least uh, Mary Baker Eddy's father and other family members found him hard to control. And with her deteriorating health, a decision was made to give the boy to Mahala and Russell Cheney, a married couple, and they took charge of George in May of 1851. Mrs. Eddy was hoping to get the boy back again or at least have contact with him, but eventually the Cheneys moved to Minnesota in 1856, taking George with them. Mrs. Eddy did not hear from George again until 1861 and didn't see him again until 1879. So this whole experience uh, with the death of her husband and the loss of her son to the Cheneys who moved west with him, this was quite a fracturing experience for her sense of family at that time. Now, the son eventually settled in South Dakota. He got married, and he and his wife were essentially illiterate. They couldn't read or write. They eventually had five children, three boys and two girls, the boys were Edward Gershom Glover, who went by the name Gershom, his middle name. Then there was uh, Mary Baker Glover, Evelyn Tilton Glover, George Glover, and Andrew Glover. So those were the five grandchildren of Mary Baker Eddy. 
So Eddie was very disappointed that uh, she hadn't had charge of her son's education, and now he was illiterate, and she was very concerned that her grandchildren wouldn't meet the same fate. Mike, thank you so much for that condensed version of what created this significant geographical divide between her and her son and his family. But perhaps more importantly, the cultural and educational divide that it also created between their lives, her son and family's lives on the frontier in South Dakota and hers in New England. Growing up in the Baker household, Mary Baker Eddy demonstrated a deep hunger for book learning from an early age, sharing this love in particular with her brother Albert, who would go on to great success as a scholar and lawyer. So what did Mary Baker Eddy do to try to bridge this educational divide with her grandchildren? We have numerous letters in the collection about this topic of wanting her grandchildren to be well-educated. One of these letters that she writes, I think, kind of sums up some of her thoughts about this. It's dated March 1st, 1888, and she's writing to her son, George. And she says in the letter, I want your children educated. Mm. No greater disgrace rests on my family name than the ignorance of the parents of these darling children. You could read in the Bible very well when you left your mother long ago. It should be a shame to anyone at any age not to be able to read. If I were 50 years old and could not read, I would learn to do it then, even if I knew I should not live a year longer. The laws of Massachusetts forbid this ignorance— Your wife ought to be ashamed to be unable to read, if she is. For the sake of your dear children, you should both of you learn to read and write. It would be a great help to them. So that kind of sums up her feelings about her son and his wife being illiterate and her fears that the children, her grandchildren, could meet the same fate. So we have, as I mentioned, numerous letters over time where she's constantly working to see that her grandchildren are educated. You know, Mike, from a 21st century point of view, Mary Baker Eddy's concerns about her grandchildren and their education seem very understandable. With all that we know about the tremendous social inequities that can develop between those that have had educational opportunity and those who've been deprived of it. So it's interesting to consider Mary Baker Eddy's paramount concern around education in that time period of the late 19th and early 20th century. And not only did she want them to have grammar school education, she wanted George, at least, to go to college, either to Harvard or Dartmouth College. Wow. And uh, I have a letter to share about that, too. This letter also includes information about her hope that her grandchildren would study Christian science. And and, and who, again, was George in the order of children of her yeah, grandchildren? George was the, the second son in, right. the, in the family. Gershom was the firstborn son. Here's a letter that she wrote to her son. This is at, around Christmas time. Well, after Christmas time. January 13th, 1900, and she says, If I do not teach your children Christian science and they are willing to be taught, I will pay their tuition and board and traveling expenses for Evelyn and Mary and Gershom. If they will go to Chicago, Illinois, and pass through a class under the instruction of Mr. Edward A. Kimball, Hmm. he is the teacher in my college 
the Massachusetts Metaphysical College in Boston, but students have to pass through the primary class that he can teach in Chicago to fit them for entering my college. I want George, my grandson, to take a classical college course at Cambridge, Massachusetts, the usual college for classical instruction, or at Dartmouth in Hanover, New Hampshire. I will pay for his college course, but he must be thoroughly taught at a high school to fit him to enter this college. This you must attend to at once. Send him away from his home, put him under a good teacher of a high school, and prepare him for college. Ask Mr. Howe where to send him. I will pay his expenses. Then after he has been graduated from college, perhaps he would learn of his sister if she has been taught the greatest of all human attainments, namely Christian science. Wow, that's quite something. Um, first of all, Mike, she references the Massachusetts Metaphysical College. So she she has a college of her own. That's right. That was uh, for most of the decade of the 1880s. This was an institution that she had founded and taught in in Boston. She taught classes in Christian science, and people who went through her classes there spread all over the country and they began healing and, and teaching them ultimately. So um, how successful was she in these efforts to get her grandchildren well-educated? Well, not as successful as she had hoped, unfortunately. <laughs> <Okay>. but, uh, <laughs> I mean, as far as I know, the boys never went to college. Right. And, uh, she had various people that she tried to put in charge of teaching them. And these efforts didn't work out well. So there were a lot of complications. As I mentioned, there are a lot of letters on this topic of educating her grandchildren in the collection. We've just picked out a few of them. Right. Well, a caring but um, frustrated grandmother, it sounds like. Right. Yeah, definitely. But Mary Bigherty did have the opportunity to meet her grandchildren when they came east for visits. And it's interesting to note that the legacy finally for the grandchildren, at least in the case of her grandson, George, was a very positive and tender one. I thought I would play a clip from an earlier episode of Seekers and Scholars in which we interviewed Heather Vogel Frederick about her book, 400 Beacon Street, Working in Mary Baker Eddy's Household. Part of the book discusses Mary Baker Eddy and her grandchildren's visits. When George, many, many, many decades later, was interviewed, by a biographer about that visit to 400 Beacon Street in, in 1910, asking what he felt and what he when he saw her. And, and he got tears in his eyes and he said, I felt she loved me. So another divide from Mary Baker Eddy came about through the unexpected and premature death of her brother, Albert. He would have exemplified the beauty of scholarly attainment, the development of character in the context of the life of the mind, all of which must have struck her as so different from what ended up being her son's experience and, as a consequence, uh, the experience for her grandchildren. Mike, what did that loss, that uh, separation that happened through his early demise, mean for her over the course of her life? Well, in her autobiography, Retrospection and Introspection, she speaks of Albert and her feelings for him as her brother. Mm -hmm. She says on page six, among the treasured reminiscences of my much-respected parents, brothers, and sisters is the memory of my second brother, Albert Baker, who was, next to my mother, the very dearest of my kindred. To speak of his beautiful character as I cherish it 
would require more space than this little book can afford. Mm. So we have a number of documents where she speaks of Albert, and we also have his obituary that was written when he died. I'd just like to read a little bit from the obituary here. He died in 1841. He was born in 1810. And the obituary says, Mr. Baker was a young man of uncommon promise, gifted with the highest order of intellectual powers. He had trained and schooled them by intense and almost incessant study during his short life. His mind was logical and discriminating to a remarkable degree. Had his life and health been spared to him, he would have made himself one of the most distinguished men in the country. He even had a fairly distinguished career up to that point. He graduated from Dartmouth College. He uh, worked in the uh, law office of President Franklin Pierce and continued with the study of law with him for two years. He then spent a year in the office of a lawyer named Richard Fletcher of Boston. And some people have felt that if he had lived, Albert Baker could have possibly become president of the United States at some point. President Pierce, not one of our most noted presidents, but <laughs> nonetheless, he did attain the highest office in the land. Mississippi was related to a woman named Fanny McNeil Potter, who uh, became right. sort of the uh, overseer of all the social functions and so forth at the White House during President Pierce's tenure there. Right. Fanny McNeil Potter speaks of Albert to Mary Baker Eddy. She told me the following incident connected with my brother. There hung on the walls of the executive mansion a fine painting of President Pierce presented to him by his native state. Before this handsome portrait, there stood one day with the president a foreign ambassador who said to the president, this is indeed a fine likeness and your state has done well to send its most illustrious son to the highest post of honor. Not so, said Mr. Pierce. Our most illustrious son is Albert Baker. By the way, we have numerous letters between Mary Baker Eddy and Fanny McNeil Potter in the collection, too. And we have a number of these reminiscences where Mrs. Eddy talks about her memories of her brother, Albert Baker. And uh, she even talks about, after his death, running into various people who told her how impressed they were with him in every respect. I think that he was sort of a model for her in many different ways. You know, she may have even been thinking of him when she was thinking of wanting her grandson George to go to Harvard or Dartmouth. So, Yeah, I, w I would think so. So Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of a new religious movement to which she dedicated her life and all her energy, her utmost capacity. But how did this affect her relations with family members that held other religious viewpoints? Well, one example of this is uh, her relationship with a sister-in-law, Mary Ann Cookbaker. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Ann Cookbaker was the second wife of Mississippi's oldest brother, Samuel Dowbaker. Okay. And after Samuel died... Uh, Mary Ann Cookbaker and, and Mrs. Eddy continued a warm relationship and correspondence. 
But Marianne Cookbaker was not a Christian scientist. She had no interest in becoming one. She was what we would call today probably an evangelical Christian. She was also a missionary at one point to Native Americans, a Christian missionary. At any rate, despite their religious differences, they did have this warm relationship. By the time 1902 came, Marianne Cookbaker was ill with cancer and was dying. In fact, hostile biographers have falsely claimed that Mary Baker Eddy had a Christian science practitioner give treatment to uh, Marianne Cookbaker, and the treatments were unsuccessful, and then Mrs. Eddy paid for Mrs. Baker to have an operation. We don't have any evidence of that. That's apparently a false story that these biographies spread. At any rate, though, during uh, Mrs. Baker's illness, uh, Mrs. Eddy did want to provide for Mrs. Baker's needs, and she asked her student, Jeanette Weller, if she would sort of oversee the caregiving of Mrs. Baker. So there's a letter that Mississippi's secretary, Calvin Fry, wrote to Jeanette Weller on May 17, 1902. Fry says, as I telephoned this morning, I enclosed check for $100 to be used supplying Mrs. M.A. Baker's need, extra nurse, rent, food, and delicacies, and whatever in your judgment is best under the present circumstances. Please tell her landlord, I forget their name, that whatever extra expense they incur making Mrs. Baker comfortable shall be made right with them. Would they be willing to let the nurse take her meals with them, and could this be arranged without discord with Mrs. Baker? I know this is requiring a great deal of your time and care, but I will make it right with you someday. Mm. And I'm anxious that mother, sister-in-law receives proper care. The mother here refers to Mary Baker Eddy because members of her household often referred to her as mother at the time. Right. Fry goes on to say, that check has not been cashed, which mother last sent to Mrs. Baker, but I have arranged so that it can do no harm. That's the gist of that letter. It shows uh, Mrs. Eddy's continuing concern to help Mrs. Baker during this illness. Yeah, you know, just a reminder that $100 was a significant sum back in in that right. period. And I also wanted to share a letter that Calvin Fry wrote on behalf of Mrs. Eddy to Mrs. Baker. Mm. Mrs. Baker's death was imminent at this point, and so this letter's dated May 27th, 1902. Mm-hmm. Fry writes, My dear Mrs. Baker, your letter for Mrs. Eddy was duly received, and in reply she bids me to say that the money she has sent you was for you to do with as you choose, but of course expects you to use all that you need of it in making yourself as comfortable as possible. With what is left, you are free to dispose of as seems best to you. Could not this be best be arranged in the form of a will? Mrs. Eddy sends tender love, and may you find the dear Jesus ever near, and his grace be found sufficient for you, and may you have a blissful reunion with the dear ones gone before. Mm. So I don't know what you think about this, Mike, but it almost seems as the wish that Calvin Fry is extending to Mary Ann Cook Baker is kind of bending towards her theology. Right. He's extending a wish that would conform to what her expectations would be for the afterlife, if you will. Yes. Mike, the embrace of this letter 
brings to mind some words from Mary Baker Eddy in her chief work, Science and Health with Heat of the Scriptures, and what they indicate about what would be her ultimate view of family, where she sees, quote, one father with his universal family held in the gospel of love. So always grateful for those words from Mary Baker Eddy. You know, it's really remarkable to get an understanding of the deeply human challenges that Mary Baker Eddy faced, and then to consider the extraordinary spiritual depth and vision that she experienced and developed in her writings and her teachings on Christian science and in her leadership of the Christian Science Church. So grateful to know more about the experience of Mary Baker Eddy, the challenges, the efforts she made, given these difficult divides that she faced with family. So thanks so much, Mike. It's been wonderful talking to you about this. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here, and thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars, in which we sampled letters and documents from the Mary Baker Eddy Library collections on Mary Baker Eddy's outreach in demonstrating concern for the well-being of close family members. Please remember that if you'd like to know more about what's in our collections, there's much to explore through the library's website under the category Research. Or you can be in touch with the library by emailing to research at mbelibrary.org. We hope you will join us for our next episode when we explore the relationship of spirituality and the performing arts. As part of the conversation, we will be looking at the life and career of Antoinette Perry, after whom Broadway's Tony Awards are named. Perry's Christian scientist family, in fact, gave their daughter the full name of Mary Antoinette Perry, with Mary as a tribute to Mary Baker Eddy. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2022.